We're going to start this morning in a place that all good sermons should start with uh, the recounting of a story about a German pop duo in the early 90s. Yes, you're right. We're talking about Millie Vanilli, people. I don't know if anyone remembers, but Millie Vanilli were uh, a pop sensation that took the world by storm in the late 80s, early 90s. They uh, had dreadlocks, shoulder pads, cycling pants, brilliant voices and dance moves to match. And they took the world by storm when they actually, in, the, in, the, in 1990, they won a Grammy for Best New Artist. And this was such an, a, a, a huge moment, a seismic moment. They stepped on stage and people were cheering for them. But in later interviews, when they asked them about that moment, they said that moment was they knew was the beginning of the end. Because they said we were filled with, not with elation or joy at receiving this award, but great despair that the gig was up and we were about to be found out. Why? Because the news would break just nine months later when the Grammy would be revoked that it was not their voices on the songs, they were lip syncing the whole time. This huge scandal actually became a very tragic story because the two gentlemen went on separate paths, both paths of despair and regret. One turned to drugs at the shame of this. He went uh, into prison. He spent time at this LA State Penitentiary. He turned to a life of crime and eventually overdosed and took his own life. The second one, because the same shame, the same scandal that just dogged his life from there, gave the rest of his life to try and ascend that, that elusive mountain one more time called fame. He wanted to get back to where he had fallen from, but he was never quite able to get there and lived with a low-level depression till the very end. This is the narrative of Millie Vanilli, but I also believe it's the narrative of us, maybe minus the dreadlocks and shoulder pads. But I think it's our story in the sense of we live with this, this fear, this underlining fear, this moment that at any moment somebody's going to go, the gig is up. That actually, that, you, that everything that you thought was real, the veneer will become crashing down and people will be exposed to the true you, the shameful you, that thing that you thought that you had dealt a death blow to, the thing that you tried to bury, forget, walk away from, that keeps dogging your every step, the thing that you cannot get free from and that you thought was long gone, is still there in your rear view mirror, that thing is, is exhausting and leaves us tired because we always are trying to get over that hurdle and that hurdle never seems to lie down. And I want to tell you today, at the very get-go, that I am tired. I'm tired of seeing a powerless church. A church that have a lot of talk, but not much change. I'm tireless of seeing God's people held captive by the enemy and never walk into the true freedom, joy, life that's promised in the scriptures towards us. I'm tired, and I want to tell you that's why we're preaching this series, the good news for a weary soul. For people who might not externally look like it, but in the inside we are saying we're ready to give up at any moment. And actually, we're trying to cover up, hide, but we're saying, no, no, we want to be a people who walk into the true freedom and true life that's promised in the gospel. This is the good news. It's the good news not about life changes. It's not the good advice or the good suggestions to a slightly better and improved life for you. No, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of what He has done, what He has accomplished on the cross for us, full stop, the end of the story, it's all about Romans 1 verse 16 says it this way. It says this reality, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power. It doesn't lead us to the power. It's not like a, a gateway to the power. No, it is the power. And that word power is the Greek word kratos. Release the kratos. I feel like I need to say that word loudly. That will be the title of my new book one day. It just sounds good. Release the kratos. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. Yeah. Old, young, rich, poor, black, white, religious, irreligious, 
broken hole, wherever you find yourself, the gospel is the only answer. It is the gospel for everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly and we just say, help us. Help us in our area of need. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our frailty. Help us where we fall short. Help us so we can walk into the freedom that you have got for us. We believe confidently that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We kicked off last week looking at this idea of justification. And justification quite simply means how God takes sinners and counts them as righteous. Today we're dealing with the doctrine of redemption. And redemption can be summed up as how God sets the thoroughly enslaved completely free. How God takes the thoroughly enslaved, those who are bound up and broken and have no ability to walk free on their own, and how God sets them completely free. No ifs and buts, no asterisks, no other story, but sets them free. And that's what we need to dive in today. And the best way I know how to do that is to read Scripture. Ephesians 1 verse 7 is this one text that I want to anchor our hearts to. My favorite verse of Scripture It's this. It goes like this. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, through his blood, according to the riches of his grace. Maybe let's read that together. Are you guys ready? I'm going to count to three. You're all going to read this out loud. One, two, three. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, through his blood, according to the riches of his grace. Three points out of this text. Number one, in him. In him. This text starts with in him. It ends with his grace, and at the middle is his blood. Yeah. It's unapologetically all about him. It doesn't say in you, or in your church attendance, or in your good works, or in your promises to become slightly better. In your, it doesn't say anything else except in him. It is so categorically clear, it is in him, in Jesus and this is huge for us because this story does not start with our sin, neither does it start with our effort, it starts with Him. Yeah. And we have to fight this because the greatest thing I could say to you today is that you need to be set free from yourself. The number one enemy, despite what Hansi Cronier says, is the devil made me do it. No, I want to tell you, number one enemy in your life oftentimes is you. Yeah. No one has lied to you more than you. Nobody has broken more promises to yourself than you. And we've got to get ourselves out of the center of the story if we're going to walk free or we're going to live with a Christianity that is just another version of exhaustion and tired living. You see, the, the world lives on a currency of hyped up influences, gathering followers and hyped up people on stages. Who will, people spend millions to go and hear people pep up your self-esteem. Somebody in some shape or form to tell you, come on, you, you can do it. You're good enough. Come on. You can go for it. Actualize your dreams. Reach your dreams. You can become a better version of yourself. Well, let me tell you, today you've got a hyped up preacher who's going to tell you the exact opposite. You can't do it. You can't. I feel like I'm on the Oprah show. Look under your seats. Look under your seats. There's nothing there because you can't do it. There's no good news here besides one thing. It's in him, not in you. This is the good news, and we've got to do this because everything is fighting this in ourselves and in our culture. Yeah. On social media, the whole premise is built on hide your sins, post your wins. 
Hide your sins. Hide the things you're shameful of. I don't, no one wants to see that thing. No one wants to see that. Put enough filters on and post the best version of yourself. And we live with this thing. You live with that long enough. It's like a new Tower of Babel. We're trying to build a name for ourselves. And let me tell you, it's exhausting. And it's crippling the church from true power. It's robbing us from the kratos. Because we've picked up another pseudo-gospel. And it's no gospel at all. I want to declare to us that this thing seeps into the way we read the Bible, seeps into the way we preach the Bible. Preachers around the world are getting millions of views and likes and followers based on preaching the Bible with you and I at the center. And we read it this way as well. We've been schooled in this, in the sense of we've been told, for example, the story of David and Goliath is this moralistic lesson of you are David and Goliath is your problems, insert said problem, boss at work, need for a raise, financial situation, emotional stress, uh, X, Y, Z, you complete the thing. That's your Goliath at the moment. And if we get enough stones and we, and we can allegorize the five stones and this first stone means X, Y, Z and we get the five stones in order and we swing them just right, we can hit Goliath in the head, he'll fall and we'll win the fight. And people come down, yes, yes, tell me pastor, tell me how I can defeat my Goliath. Well, I'm here to tell you, you can't defeat your Goliath. Why? Because you're not David. It's not about you. It's in him. The best biblical way to read that story is David is a type and shadow of Christ. If you want to know who you and I are in that story, we are the brothers hiding, petrified, with knocking knees, watching from a distance, potentially wetting our pants, watching the story happen, and Jesus slaying the Goliath of death and sin and shame on the cross, and then we going, as Goliath falls, we go, we won, and we run into the victory. That's our role in the story. You're welcome. The Good Samaritan is not a biblical version of ethics of how you and I can do better and become nicer people. No, ultimately, the very crux of it, who are you and I? We're not the Good Samaritan. Jesus is. We are the bloodied and beaten up person on the side of the road who's helpless and no ability to help themselves. The story goes that the religious, religion will come and religion has no ability to help you. Traditions of man will come and it's got no abilities to help you. But one who you never expected, who you never thought you needed, called the Good Samaritan, steps in the story and says, I will be your mode of salvation. The offense that's to everyone else, everyone watching, is that's offensive. Yes, it is offensive. It's the gospel. It's not in you. It's in him. You see, we, we got to start doing this because we, if we don't pick this up and realize this and put it deep in our hearts, not just as theory, but reality, we start to pick up a new form of penance, yeah. weekly penance. We, in church, we turn church into this reality of, of assuaging our guilt at a low level. We come to church. We sing, we say sorry, we receive the forgiveness, we say, God, this week I'm going to promise to do better, we make it two steps out the door, we fall down, we have a terrible week, we live in that guilt for the week until we come to church, we ask for forgiveness, God forgives us, we say, I'm going to promise I'm going to do better, we step up, we try again, we fall down, and on goes the cycle of this exhaustion, and we're wondering why we're tired, we're wondering why we're going, what is going on, I'm not, I'm, I'm saying the right things, but I'm not walking into the freedom that's promised, and this is the reality for us, it's like my kids, when I tell them, guys, tidy up the room. Olivia, age six, Benji, age four, get to work. And after a while, come in, and they're standing up against the cupboard doors. And they're holding it back. And I can see those cupboard doors are heaving. And they're like, it's all clean, Dad. And I know if they just cough, or if they just, if they just uh, have a giggle, or if they just move in the slightest, that whole cupboard and that whole charade is coming tumbling down. 
And actually, that's what we live like. That's what religion sells us. It sells us this premise that we've got to clean up the mess and we've got to hold it together. Hide your sins, post your wins. And we hold this thing like this. And we go, it's all clean. And everyone else thinks it's great. But inside, we're internally dying. And it's not just making our life tough. It's actually killing you. Yeah. Stop drinking the poison. Yeah, Get set to you from yourself. It's not in you. It's not in your efforts. It's not in your attempts. It's not in you saying, I'm going to do better. It's going actually resolutely saying, it's in him. In him, I say to you and I that this is the reality that there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 23,145 verses, and all of them, either explicitly or in some veiled way, but all of them are pointing towards him. He is the chief proponent of the story. He's the chief hero of the story. And until we get that, we will not be able to walk free. It starts off with in him. Secondly, it goes on and says, in him, we have redemption. Point two, we have redemption. And let me tell you, if you watch your Bibles, go home and circle those words, we have. We have. They're written in the present continuous tense, meaning that the redemption that's been secured is here available for you now. It's here for you now. This idea of redemption is the concept of ransom. A ransom has been paid. And this idea of a, a, a military power, they've been in conflict, and they take prisoners of war, and they take you into the prisoner's camp, but then somebody else comes and steps in and pays the ransom on your behalf and sets you free and takes you out of the prison of war camp and takes you back to your homeland. Not just paying a, a price for you and leaving you in the same conditions, no, taking you out and moving you into a very new state. That is redemption. Taking you out of and placing you into and paying the ransom that is, uh, that is needed. Uh, the better way to probably put it is this is idea of Jesus being played by a man named Liam Neeson, saying, I will find you, I will look for you, and I will kill you. Is that raw? Is that real? This is not a, the a theological word to put on the shelf and go, redemption. And I think I understand it. No, it's something to be experienced. It's our king stepping into the depravity and the brokenness of our slavery and saying, I've come to set you free. Not in thought, not as an idea or concept, but in reality. We have redemption. We have redemption. And this is the question I want to ask. What have we been redeemed from? Glad you asked, because number one, it is we've been redeemed from sin. Sin. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sin. We were dead in our trespasses. And we have been redeemed in two ways from sin. From the penalty of sin, meaning that we've been forgiven. There was a penalty that was against us. We've been forgiven, but not just the penalty, but also the power of sin. And I think a lot of us might get this idea of we've been forgiven of the penalty. A debt was owed, it's been paid, and we've been forgiven. Oh, I've been washed clean. But nothing changes in our life because we haven't understood this element of redemption that the power of sin has been defeated. Not just the penalty, the power of sin. What I mean by that is the scriptures tell us in the book of Romans, Romans 6 explicitly talks about that we were slaves to sin. That sin was our master. Sin had a noose around our neck and would pull us this way and we'll go that way. Sin would pull that way and we'll go this way. Maybe Hansi was right. The devil did make me do it because I'm being pulled left and I'm pulled right. And, and Paul, the apostle Paul says, I, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. And this, it's a wrestle that's very common to a lot of our hearts. We, we, and we go, why did I do that? Why do I keep going back to that? Why do I keep replying that way? Why do I keep responding that way? Because sin is your master pulling you where you don't want to go. But the Bible says we've been redeemed from sin. And if you want to learn a verse of Scripture, a portion of Scripture, Colossians 2, starting in verse 13 to 15, is where we're going to anchor ourselves. Colossians 2, 13 is a remedy of how we've been set free from sin. It says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. 
Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. Come on, let's just say it from the deep depths of our belly. Say all our sins. Try one more time. The balcony people, are you ready? All our sins. Offensive word, that word all. Think right now, the worst thing you've ever done. That thing that you wish you, if, if somebody knew now what you had said, what you had thought, that depraved place your mind went, that, that actually that day that you wish you got, I'm like, why did I walk into that room? Why did I pick up that thing? What, think of that moment that you wish you could bury, forget, walk away from. You know that thing? Don't tell somebody. Don't, don't, don't worry. But that thing is included in that all. Past, present, future. Even the sins you are yet to come up with, paid for. All. It's offensive. It's offensive, but unless we get the offensive nature of this, we're never going to be radically free. We're going to be partially free. We're going to dip our toes into freedom, but God said, no, there's redemption available for you, and I want to remind us in this moment that there's no more powerful sin than the blood of Jesus. There's nothing more powerful than the blood of Jesus. No sin, no sin, no sin is more powerful than the blood of Jesus. Nothing. And we have to believe this because we can believe it outwards for others, but internally for ourselves until we believe that and bring that into the light and say, Jesus, I trust you with this. Yeah. We'll all live with Millie Vanilli syndrome, all waiting for the curtain to come down and go, fraud. I knew it all along. Yeah. This is the reality for us. We've got to find this because I tell you, Jesus' blood can break the power of sin now. We have, we have, we have on offer for you today. Right now, sir, ma'am, this is no very Mark advert, but I tell you, we have redemption. We have redemption. We have redemption. Not just something that you're hoping for one day when, today, now, 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 I beg you, I implore you, don't walk out of here with the stain and the shame. It's available for you. It's available for you and I. We can be free. We've been set free. We've been redeemed from sin, secondly, from the law. We weren't just dead. We were disobedient. The Bible tells us that we were slaves to the law. Sin pulled us like a master. It says that law pulls us left and right, but the law is pulling us to and fro, but it can't free us. The law is good and true and will stand forever, but it cannot free us. It just points out where we've fallen short. Like a police officer who says, Sir, did you know you were going 80 in a 60 zone? Yep. Sir, here is your fine for exceeding the speed limits. I go, thank you. And I say, Sir, would you mind paying my bill? He goes, that is not my job. That's the reality. A police officer is there to point out where we've fallen short, not to help bring a remedy to the solution. And that's what the law is. The law is there, like a glorified MRI machine, to say this is what is wrong, but it cannot do anything to cure us. That's what, the law is there to push us to our true parent grace. To run, as Galatians 4 said, the law was in place until the true parent grace arrived. And that's what we have to do. We have to run from it because if we stay in the place of this reality, it's like what happened here many years ago when I led the youth we had a, a moment where I thought it was a great idea. In retrospect, not, so, not my finest moment. We had a food fight in the parking lot. Spoiled food from checkers. Chaos. Fun teenagers loving it. Until the teenagers went home, and the five youth leader said, this parking lot needs to be cleaned by Sunday. And it was a task and a half. So we got all the brooms out. We got we started cleaning and scrubbing. An hour went by, an hour went by. And after a while, I looked up, and I saw one girl, one of the leaders in the corner with a brush and a little pan, Cleaning in the corner, cleaning in the corner. And I'm watching her going, she's been scrubbing that one little spot. But if she lifts her eyes, she can see that the, par the, car the parking lot, car park, let's say that three times fast. The parking lot is, is a mess. And I bless her heart for her trying to help. But uh, that moment of her in the corner trying to clean up is what we try and do when we think, I can clean up myself. 
I can make it right. It's us trying a little corner. We think, wow, look what I've done. Look into it and go, oh, goodness. That's how much debt I still owe. You'll never get to the end of it. It'll just leave you more and more exhausted and more and more defeated and going, what am I doing here? Because we have not understood and released the kratos, the power of the gospel. Colossians 2 verse 14, 13 tells us about sin. 14 tells us of the law. It says, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. The charges that said you are guilty, rightfully so, Christ took those and nailed them to the cross. The only thing that got off the cross was Jesus Christ. The sin that he, he bore was left there. The law that was canceled and put, nailed to the cross was left there. It has not been resurrected. So stop trying to rise it from the dead. Live in the freedom he's got for you. We've been redeemed from sin, redeemed from the law. Thirdly, I want to tell you, we've been redeemed from the dominion of darkness. We were dead. We were disobedient, but also we were doomed. Doomed. You see, the enemy uses the, the, our sin and our guilt and our shame as his left, right, left, right hooks. And he leaves us punched drunk in the ring and and a lot of us feel like our lives are, we come to church for a brief respite, we've got a black eye, we look like uh, Sean Strickland after the Drickers flight last week, and we feel a little bit like, here we go, punch drunk. Church is good that we step back into the week, and it's almost like we're stepping back into the ring with the enemy, and he just goes. Nothing changes, left, right, left, right, and you're up against the wall, up against the rope, saying next week, come back, uh, praise the Father, pray back in the ring, boom, hit again, hit again. And it's exhausting, and we're wondering, it feels like, what am I doing here? Well, I want to say, I think a lot of us have been trying to fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. And that will lead you exhausted. And that will leave you tired. They'll leave you with black eyes, bruises, and you will not walk free. Why? Because a lot of us are still living, and we're living in this, uh, this perpetual state of nursing and rehearsing fear and anxiety yeah. and depression and lust. And, we, and we're wondering why we do that. And sin's pulling us to the Lord, and we feel like we're being enslaved by the enemy. I want to tell you, you are enslaved by the enemy. Yeah. Scriptures say this way, we, it's a spirit of fear. This is not just some, just some battle. This is, we have to understand, with this waging war not against powers, uh, uh, physical powers, but about powers and principalities of darkness. This, this thing can, this, we have redemption from the enemy's clutches, the enemy who holds us like a vice. And you say, why do I keep going back for that lustful pattern? Why do I keep going back to the angry response? Why do I keep going back to that racial retort? Why do I keep going, that wickedness in my heart? Why do I keep going back there, no matter how many things? The enemy has got you, and we, but we have redemption from the enemy's power. Not years and hours of counseling that can help, but unless it takes you to the, in him we have redemption, you're never going to be set free. This is who we are. We have to position ourselves because this is what happened. Christ walks into the middle of the ring, a spiritual ring, and he said to Satan, you've been bullying my people for too long, and he plunged the cross of, of Jesus Christ, of the, the, the cross of Calvary, into the middle of the ring, and he silenced the barking dog of Satan forever, and it wasn't a fair fight. It wasn't 12 rounds of Satan had a few blows, Jesus had a, a couple of blows, and oh, who's going to win? Who's going to get the knockout? No, no, no. Jesus walked in, and with one blow, he said, done. We have redemption. Set the captives free. Colossians 2, verse 15, 13 says it's about sin. 14, about the law. 15 says it this way. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He stripped Satan and all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Yeah. 
So the picture is, slave, sin was our master. We were slaves to sin. The law, the demonic powers was our master, pulling us this way. And I'm just, I'm subject to the spirit of fear. And I, when, whatever happens, I can't deal with it because that's who I am. I'm just in that. But Jesus says, no, no, no. He steps into the ring. And he says, I'm going to make those sham authorities slaves to my ends. And he defeated them, paraded them around, the conquered as the, over the conqueror. This is the reality for us. We have to remind ourselves that we, in him, we have redemption. How is this all playing out? The third and final point is through his blood. I don't know about you, but I've often thought at times that the Bible's quite bloody and gory. A lot of sacrifice and this and that and regulations. and I'm just trying to make sense of it. And I asked the question at some stage, maybe you have as well, why can't God just forgive us? Why this whole blood thing? Well, for me, it's this reality that actually we have reduced the gospel when we do that. When we try and make it a God to that we can understand his rationale, we've reduced the gospel to some soppy, unintellectual, moralistic, therapeutic deism where God says, you're not that bad. And he winks at our sin, and he's almost like a cosmic tooth fairy, and we wonder why we're still enslaved and exhausted. Because we're fashioning up a God in our own image. When God says, no, 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 this is the reality. This is how this thing plays out. There can be no forgiveness of sins without a shedding of blood. And the the most simplistic and probably the most helpful way for me that I've had to understand this was as an illustration, if you left church today, you walk out, you've got your coffee in one hand, humming along one of the songs Jerry sang today, and going, wow, church was good. You get to your car, and there's somebody there with a baseball bat just laying into it, going to town. Hubcaps are being smashed. The windscreen is being cracked. The, 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 the lights are the back and the front. The indicator is gone. The windows are going. You're just getting in. It's like a panel beater on steroids. That car is looking mangled. And you run and going, what are you doing? And the guy just drops the bat. He goes, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I don't know what came over me. I just saw the bat. I saw your car. And it seemed the logical response. And I'm like, man, that, that's dreadful. But then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. The guy preached on redemption and forgiveness. And, ah, oh, okay. People are watching. I forgive you, forgive you. And the guy's like, thank you, man. Big hugs, forgiven, thank you. Cheers, high five, he runs off. Now, that might sound all well and good, but here's the problem. There's still a broken car that needs to be fixed. There's still something, money needs to be paid to get that car fixed. I can be the nicest guy in the world and forgive him, but there's still a debt that is owed. Someone's gonna have to pay that. And likewise, we have, in our rebellion towards God, in our sinful practices, we have laid into our lives and we've trashed and wrecked our lives to such an extent, well, there's a debt that needs to be owed. And God can't just forgive us. A price needs to be paid. So the way his forgiveness works is he says either you have to die, the wages of sin is death, or someone else has to die in your stead. That's when we have to understand the good news of the gospel is that he died in our stead. He died in our stead. Hebrews 9.12 says, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Forever, not temporary, not earthly, complete, and once for all. It's not like a car license that you have to renew every, every year. The, the poster, I've got to try it again. No, it's once and for all. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, God has redeemed you from the empty way of life. Your powerless, exhausting life, he has redeemed you from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your forefathers. He paid this ransom, not with mere silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Now this narrative of the blood of Jesus, if we pick up the thread that's always been in Him, this is not a new narrative which is something pushed at the end of a preach. This is the whole story of the Bible. 
if we go on the thing that every verse, every chapter is alluding in some shape or form about the one who will come, the Lamb of God who will take the sins of the world. We flick back to the story of Exodus and we go, likewise, like the Milli Vanilli story in some shape and part, it's our story as well. The story of the Exodus is that the people of God have been enslaved for 430 years under the demonic, oppressive stronghold of Pharaoh who's crushing him under his grip. And for 430 years, this generational slavery. I've been away from Zimbabwe. I grew up there. I left there 20 years ago. And I talk about it a lot, but let me tell you, every passing year, Zimbabwe and the life there gets fainter and fainter for me, the memory of it. Now imagine 430 years of generational slavery. This generation now don't know what slavery even looks like. They don't even know what it smells like. They have no other context for it because they've been so bound for 430 years. Their backs are bent from the work. Their fingers are cracked and held over through arthritis. Their identity is shattered. They're exhausted. They're tired. They have no idea what this freedom is until a type and shadow of Christ named Moses, a deliverer, steps in. And he goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, you let my people go. And Pharaoh says, uh, no. So God says, I will show him my might. He pours out plague after plague after plague, nine plagues that bring Egypt to its very knees. But after every plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, 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 I will not let your people go. Until it got to the climax, the crux of the whole thing. Not as a last resort, but it was always the plan because God was going to tell us in explicit fashion. It's not through our rhetoric and what we say. Let my people go. You can have the loudest voice. That's not going to help. You can, it's not even through a show of power. If I just get that person to pray for me, or if that thing happens, or, no, it's not through a show of power. He says it's always going to be only one means of redemption. It's through blood. Yeah. And he told the people, he said, this is what, he says, tonight, freedom is coming. He says, get ready, put on your shoes, put on your clothes, pick up your walking stick. And he says, because tonight you're walking free. 430 years, he tells us, he says, get ready, get ready, people. Tonight is coming. Tonight is coming. We have redemption. And he said, how is this going to happen? He says, take the blood of a lamb and I want you to go and I want you to paint it on your door frames of your home. Is that all? That sounds so simplistic. Is that all? He says, yeah, this is it. Paint the door frames. Because he said, what's going to happen is the angel of death will pass over and every home that does not have the blood upon it, the firstborn of every home will pass away, will be killed. And those homes waiting, chapter 12, verse 29 says this. It says, at about midnight, the angel of the Lord starts to pass over the homes. And I read that about midnight, when it's the darkest moment, when the fear is at its highest, when they feel like there's nowhere out for them, going, will this work? Will fear relent now? What, is the, what are we going to do? Is the blood enough? How are we going to compose ourselves? When it's the darkest moment, redemption is probably the clearest it's ever been. I tell you today, when you might be in a situation where you feel in the grip of the enemy, your sin has held you so hell-bound that you say, I can't get out. I've made promises, Gabe. You don't know that thing that's in the closet that I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to keep it away. I'm posting my wins, hiding my sins. I can't be free. You think that you're trying to please God by the law, but the law is holding you. And the accusing finger of the law is jabbing you day and night, telling you where you fell short. You're not good enough. You'll never measure up. That thing will never be forgiven. That thing you held so tight and you can't get through and it's exhausting. And the, the grip of the enemy has held you demonically, held you in fear, addiction, lust, porn brokenness and you say how do I get free God alcoholism how do I get free I can't do this he says in him paint the doors in him we have redemption put on your clothes put on your shoes pick up your walking stick we're walking out the forgiveness of sins through his blood according to the riches of his grace let's stand to our feet at this moment church I tell you 
uncategorically, I tell you clear, categorically, very, very clear in this moment. There is only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son. There is only one name that when it is spoken, every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that He is Lord. Oh, some trust in chariots, others in horses, some trust in finances, some trust in their own promises, some trust in their own sense of goodness, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. For He is the bright and morning star. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the balm of Gilead. He is the dew on Mount Hermon. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the firstborn of all creation, and He's the firstborn among the dead. He is the second Adam who came and stood in our stead. He's the mediator between God and man. He's our great high priest. He's the incarnate Son of the Most High, and He is the only one, I say it clearly, He is the only one, sir, ma'am, who can set the thoroughly enslaved completely free. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Can we close our eyes in this moment? I believe today, put on your shoes, put on your clothes, get up your walking stick, Life change, we're walking free. Today, today salvation beckons. Today, freedom beckons. Today, redemption is calling your name. If you've been enslaved and you feel the grip of the enemy upon your life, I even have a picture of people who struggle to sleep at night because they replay and replay that moment and the grip of their debauchery and their sin. And then the moment when they, they try to have relationships, it's distorted the way they t- talk to God, distorted the way they function. And you've been under the grip of the law that accuses you. He says, I snapped the bony finger of the law. But if that's you who's been in the grip and he's saying, I don't know how to be free. Today I say, today's your day of freedom. And it's not in you, sir, ma'am. Don't walk out of here making another promise. Don't walk out of here clinging to your own old trailer saying, I'll just pack it neater. No, 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 no. Let it go. And watch the redemption of the Lord start to break out. If that's you in this room, we are doing war today. We're coming free. The captives are coming free. If that's you, I love you. Say, I'm done. I am, I'm done. I'm tired of a powerless Christianity. But I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus, for it is the power, the kratos, the delivering power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. No matter how far you've run, no matter how deep you are in your sin, no matter where you stand, for everyone who believes, this is the power of God. If that's you, one, two, three, can you lift your hands as a sign of surrender, as a form of saying, I'm done, but I want your freedom. Jesus, I thank you that your eyes are on us. Your eyes have never left us. You are the deliverer who steps into our story today. And you step into the drug-addled state of our lives. You step into the lust-filled brokenness of our lives. You step into the racist cesspools of our hearts. You step into our fears and anxieties that have crippled us. You step into the pasts that have gripped us and never let us go. You step into us and you declare, let my people go. And I thank you, Father God, redemption comes. Redemption comes for sons and daughters. Today you can be set free. Today you can be set free. I declare it one last time in Him. We have redemption. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through His blood, according to the riches of His grace. We declare this. We believe it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Can we give God a shout of praise? Thankful in faith for what He has done. Faithful. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in our lives. We love you, King Jesus.